Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. In Toronto at 106.5 FM in Ottawa, 95.7. Welcome to our listeners and welcome to those who have downloaded the Radio Canada app and are listening on their, de- on their device uh, anywhere across this this uh, country. Uh, you can do that by downloading the Radio Canada app and then, of course, uh, just typing in 106.5 Element, E-L-M-N-T-F-M, or 95.7 E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and you can listen uh, anywhere on your device whenever you like. Welcome to the show and welcome our guest this morning. We have a, a very important guest, uh, someone who will dis- be discussing a very serious matter in, in this country and things that have come forward dealing with law in the country. I have uh, Kent Roach. He is the professor of law at the University of Toronto, where he holds the Pritchard Wilson Chair in Law and Public uh, Policy. In 2002, he was elected to a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada by his fellow academics and in 2015 was appointed a member of the Order of Canada. In 2013, he was awarded the Trudeau Fellowship, and in 2017, the Canada Council Award awarded him the Molson Prize for his contributions, and he has taught criminal law since 1989, and he's been a uh, editor-in-chief of the Criminal Law Quarterly since 1998. Mr. Roach, welcome. Welcome this morning. Good morning, David. Thanks. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. You know, um, you you have uh, written a book, and uh, it is, is discussing the Gerald Stanley uh, Colton Bushy case uh, specifically. But you you do get into other things, and one of the things I did notice in 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 the book that you talked quite extensively about, it, I guess, is the treaty process and how they impact things. We're going to get into that, but if you don't mind, can you uh, you know tell us a little bit more about yourself? For instance, why are you so engaged and so interested in in this? Kind of thing, right? Well, as as you mentioned, I've I've, I've taught criminal law since 1989, and I've always taught the Donald Marshall Jr. wrongful conviction mm. uh, uh, case to my first year students. Mm. And my prosecutor friends used to tease me and say, "Well, when are you going to talk about wrongful acquittals?" Mm. And when the Stanley Bushy case came along, I was teaching that year and I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail basically saying that um, Jade Tatusis and the family were right to be concerned about the jury selection and to be concerned about the use of peremptory challenges mm. which removed five visibly Indigenous people from the jury and I and I wrote this before the verdict. Mm. And then uh, I taught the the case to my class and then like so many people I was shocked when there was a complete acquittal I was also shocked uh, when the representative of the Attorney General of Saskatchewan suggested that criticisms of the the acquittal were uninformed. And then I was also shaken when I was invited to the College of Law at the University of Saskatchewan, where I used to teach, and uh, to talk about jury selection. And I really saw kind of the racial polarization and, and hurt in the room, but also a lot of resistance to the idea that this was a miscarriage of justice. So I think all of that combined to write a book. Um, I think it's important to note, though, that 
This book does not attempt to tell the story of the Bushy Baptiste family. Right. It doesn't attempt to tell the story of the Stanley family. Mm. It is simply, and it's published by an academic press, it is is based on public sources. Yeah. And, and working with a bunch of Indigenous and non-Indigenous academics, we were able to get the full transcripts of both the preliminary hearing and the trial. So that's the primary source. But as as you mentioned, in part, learning from uh, indigenous colleagues, I felt that I had to look at the treaties and the 1885 trials and to, 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 to put this case, which I believe is a miscarriage of justice, into a larger context. So you just mentioned uh, the 1885 trials. What what drew your attention to that, and why why did you feel that is important? Right. Well, I mean, the book really starts with treaty with the signing of Treaty Six mm-hmm. and kind of the misunderstandings between uh, Alexander Morris and uh, the Cree leader uh, uh, known as Big Bear, or uh, I probably shouldn't say because. <laughs> Miss Tanawasis, mm. your Cree is probably much, much, much better than than mine. And that misunderstanding was was actually about the issue of criminal justice. And then, of course, in the eighteen eighty five uprisings, there was eight people who uh, uh, Cree um, uh, men who who were convicted and hanged publicly in Battleford. And of course, the actual trial of Gerald Stanley happened in Battleford. Mm. And I felt that, you know, when there was a public hanging, there were two divisions of what's now the RCMP there to do security. And people may be aware that there was kind of over-the-top security at Mr. Stanley's bail hearing, at his preliminary hearing, and during the trial. And Bill Wazer, uh, a, a Saskatchewan historian, has, has referred to this kind of imagined siege of Battleford, which is really, I think, about the fear that many settlers have a kind of racist fear of indigenous men. And I thought that it was important to kind of situate that because not only does that speak to history, but I think it also may speak to why Mr. Stanley uh, responded the way he did when Colton Bushy and his four friends came on to his farm. You know, uh, when you when you speak in this way, it brings up so many so many other questions. Um, but I guess, uh, what do you know about the case? Why don't we then, you know, just sort of, sort of go into the case a little bit prior to, mm-hmm. you know, the day of, uh, we know he was out drinking with some friends. We know they, that he, he came back, he was driving their, their SUV broke down or got a flat tire or something. Uh, he then was, all, and they pr- apparently tried to break into another, uh, vehicle on another farm mm-hmm. prior to that. Yep. They got to the Stanley, and then they they got into the SUVs. They tried to start that. Do you want to elaborate more on on how the details sort of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I don't. I don't think it was the SUV that they they. there is some evidence that two of the five people, not Colton Bushy, got out of the car and tried to start an ATV. Right. But then what happened is uh, Sheldon Stanley, who is uh, Gerald Stanley's son, who was visiting, um, hit the car uh, with a hammer. 
uh, breaking the windshield. And then the car that they were driving, which has, as you noted, had a flat tire, uh, banged into, crashed into um, the Stanleys mm. uh, uh, Ford Escape. They're right. actually both Ford Escapes. And then comes to be disabled quite some distance from Mr. Stanley's um, uh, Ford Escape. Mr. Stanley's testimony was that during this, he had gotten his pistol from the shed and that he had fired two warning shots while he was at his Ford. Now, the two men who had exited the car uh, didn't think they were warning shots. They thought that they were shots at them. But that's, you know, mm. one of the factual sure. ambiguities right. that we may never know. But but I think what's important for people to understand is that Mr. Stanley's testimony was that after he fired the warning shots, he never uh, uh, touched the trigger of the pistol that killed Colton Bushy again. And his testimony was that he then ran from his Ford Escape to the Ford Escape that Mr. Bushy was in in the driver's seat. He looked under that Ford Escape because he thought his wife might have been run over. His wife mm. was mowing the lawn. And then he came back. He reached in with his left hand to turn off the ignition while his right hand, which still had his pistol, was behind Colton Bushy's head and that the gun went off accidentally. And so this this is what was referred to as the hang fire mm. sort of defense. And you. and really the jury accepting the hang fire defense and we don't really know because a jury just says guilty or not guilty mm. is really the only possible explanation that I can think of as an expert in criminal law about why the jury would have acquitted Mr. Stanley of both murder and man manslaughter. So this was a complete acquittal. Mr. Stanley walked. And, you know, one of the problems there is as I went through the transcripts, I found that the RCMP expert who was called by the prosecution testified that when there is a hang fire, which is a delay between pulling the trigger and the bullet exiting the gun, in scientific studies, it's been measured as less than half a second. Mm. Whereas Mr. Stanley's lawyer, I think quite shrewdly, um, called evidence and was allowed to put in evidence about individuals who had experienced longer hang fires, 10, 20 seconds, but also even more importantly, hunting safety guidelines that says if you pull the trigger and nothing happens – put the muzzle in a safe position sure. for 30 to 60 seconds. Right. And the problem is, is that there's nothing wrong with 30 to 60 seconds as a safety standard, right? You can do it for 90 seconds, mm. but there is absolutely no evidence that a hang fire could have that sort of delay. And you really need that sort of delay to explain either Mr. Stanley's testimony that he ran quite some distance or his son's testimony that he saw his father walking. So for me, um, and, and, you know, this is an issue that I see again and again when I teach a course on wrongful convictions, is that lawyers 
and juries have a hard time understanding science. I mean, most of us go to law school because we're, we're not smart enough to get into medical school. We don't know the science well enough. And so I think that what we see here is that the jury might have thought, well, 30 to 60 seconds, that kind of explains things, whereas there's really no scientific basis. So there's a couple of things that, that come to mind, and, and one is uh, the fact that we know in, in the United States that, that you know people have a right to defend themselves right. uh, on their property, and I can you know I've, I've seen some some documentaries uh, you know shoot first, ask questions later. That's right. Uh, in some some states, but here in Canada, it. it it's surprising to to see, and this has happened a couple of times where we've heard Absolutely. this: where weapons have been used, people have been killed, and it's like, how is this possible? It's the other thing is, that's one, uh, and and the other question is, um, is the time of day? Because I, you know, in hearing this story, not knowing all the details, yes. I thought it was in the evening. And no, you're saying his wife was out cutting yeah. the grass yeah. now. So that sets up a whole new Absolutely. scenario for me. Absolutely. And, and, you know, wow. So do you know what time of day this was? Yeah. I mean, I think the RCMP arrived on the farm sometime between five and six. Mr. Stanley was arrested, as were all four of the Cree, uh, the, the, the two Cree men and the two Cree, Cree women. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, the time of day is, is, is also, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to get in to this too much cause I, I, I realize that people are triggered and mm. traumatized by it, but, um, Colton Bushy's, um, body was left, uh, on the ground for, uh, for quite some time. Uh, the scene was not secured. It rained that evening and, uh, uh a lot of the, uh, evidence was uh, was basically rained and and evaporated so it is you know very very sad um, when you talk about how can it happen here I, I mean I guess I have two answers one answer is that we're not immune from the gun culture and frankly the kind of racist fears of racialized men that we see in the United States uh, and we know that Saskatchewan um, has very high rates of gun ownership. There was a racially charged debate about rural crime, which was really another way of talking about indigenous settler relations and, and frankly, racist fears of indigenous men. Um, it's very dangerous to be an indigenous man in Saskatchewan. The The murder rate is, is even higher than it is for indigenous women. And of course, for both indigenous men and women. The, so the, the murder rate is higher for? For being victimized, right? And, so, and, and the victims are? Indigenous, indigenous. men. And, 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 and Ironically, you're saying that, that, that the non-Indigenous people should be fearful. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and yet the victims are mostly Indigenous. Absolutely. And, Isn't and, that and, interesting? I mean, it, it's a tragedy, right? And it explains why the Canadian criminal justice system and why I called this book Canadian Justice, Indigenous Injustice. Mm. The Canadian justice system fails Indigenous people both 
as offenders because they're overrepresented, but also as victims. Mm. So, you know, very soon we're going to have the report of the missing, murdered uh, Indigenous women and and children report. But the the statistics, especially in Saskatchewan, actually show that Indigenous men are the most frequent victims of homicide. And, of course, that's that's what happened here. And that you're – I just – Makes more sense that the indigenous people should be afraid. Exactly. The other issue well, the other way around. Well, you know. exactly. <laughs> and uh, and mm. Eric Mee Chance and Cassidy Cross, who were the two surviving Cree mm. men, mm. were uh, were running away from the farm. Mm. Right. So you know, again, Mr. Stanley's perception of danger mm. um, to me doesn't make a lot of sense because the two indigenous men are actually, while Colton Bushy is killed, running for their lives, they believed, away from the farm. The two indigenous women are, are, as Sheldon Stanley said, huddled in the back seat. Colton Bushy is in the front seat. Now, there is a loaded gun in the car, but Mr. Stanley testifies that he didn't know about that. Um, so there is a kind of gun culture mm. in Saskatchewan, but also, you know, near Hamilton, where I live. And I think we'll, we'll talk about uh, the Cahill, yeah. uh, John, John Surratt case, which I also deal with in the book. So, so that's a sociological explanation. The legal explanation is that the Harper government uh, liberalized our self-defense laws in 2012 and basically made it easier to claim self-defense. And now, you know, uh, uh, tomorrow there'll be an election in Alberta. Uh, The United Conservative Party, Jason Kenney's party, Mm. wants to liberalize them again, as did the the rural municipalities of Saskatchewan before this. So there's an appetite out there, and it's one that I disapprove of, that's basically saying the state can't protect us. We have to protect ourselves. And so part of the Harper reform to self-defense laws, and I use the word reforms in quotation marks, was, you know, a a kind of, you know, blander Canadian version of the Florida stand-your-ground reforms, which, of course, uh, were were featured in the debate about Trayvon Martin's um, death, the the African-American wearing a hood Mm. uh, who who was killed. One of the other things that I found when I read the transcript is that Gerald Stanley testifies that both Mr. Meechance and Mr. Cross were wearing hoodies when they exited the car, even though his son describes them not as wearing hoodies. And of course, to go back to Trayvon Martin, the symbol of um, uh, this kind of racist use of self-defense against racialized men was the issue of the hoodie. So, you know, this idea that Canada is immune from mm. uh, aggressive gun and self-defense culture, I think, is a myth that um, settlers in Canada like to delude themselves with. Yeah. Um, so it's a, we have to take a pause, and that might be a good place to do this. So you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Our guest this morning is Professor Kent Roach. He is uh, at the University of Toronto. And we're going to take this short break and come back and discuss more.
right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest today in the studio is Professor Kent Roach, and he is a professor at, of law at the University of Toronto. He's also the author of Canadian Justice, Indigenous Justice, the Gerald Stanley Colton Bushy case. And we have been talking to some degree about that situation and uh, also uh, to some degree about uh, how laws are changing in Canada in terms of self-defense and those kind of things and and uh, and and uh, guns in Canada. I guess the one thing you know we we talked about also with this uh, that was interesting to me was the time of day and what time this happened because I, I don't know why I thought it was at night, you know, uh, <laughs> late at night, you know, and yeah. when you can't see anything. Uh, and to learn that it was, uh, you know, probably sounds like maybe three or four o'clock in the afternoon when this all took place. His his uh, uh, Gerald Stanley's wife is out cutting the grass. Um, it, it just, you know, throws a whole new uh, uh, light on this this case. But, you know, the other thing is that that uh, uh, Colton wasn't alone. He had other people with him. And you right. were telling us about how. Um, the other people, the, there were two women in the back of the, the yep. vehicle. Uh, the other two males that were with him were running away. We didn't hear anything about those people, though. What do you know happened to them? Right. Well, um, three of the four testified at trial, and I have a chapter on it where I mm-hmm. talk about Indigenous witnesses being on trial. So the two men uh, were subject to, you know, fairly aggressive uh, cross-examination on the basis that there were discrepancies about what they first told the RCMP when they were originally mm-hmm. arrested uh, for uh, property offenses and what they were testifying as. But the most important witness, in my view, was uh, Belinda Jackson. And Belinda Jackson testified that she saw Mr. Stanley um, more or less deliberately shoot Colton Bushy. Um, But she testified that there were two shots. And the forensic evidence suggests that after the two warning shots, there was only a third shot from Mr. Stanley's gun. And so that discrepancy was used to impugn Miss Jackson's credit credibility. She was basically called a liar by the the defense counsel, but even more problematically, the Crown prosecutor told the jury not to rely upon her testimony. So although the Crown prosecutor called her as a witness in, in the Crown's final submission to the jury, he said, I will not be relying on Miss Jackson's testimony. And so, you know, one of the things that I explore, and we can only speculate, I mean, unfortunately, and I find this in wrongful conviction cases, sometimes the facts will frankly never be fully crystallized or known. But it would seem to be, you know, if I was sitting in the back seat of a car and a friend of mine was, was killed in, in front of me, and given how loud the gun is, I mean, one of the mm. reasons why Mr. Stanley had this pistol was that it was, it was an old pistol, and it was extremely loud, and he used it to scare mm. away coyotes mm. that, that were on the farm. I'm not sure, you know, whether I would hear the number of shots correctly. Right. I mean, we all know that that when we're witnesses to something awful happening like a crime, our recall is not perfect. So, you know, the fact that even the Crown wouldn't rely on Belinda Jackson's testimony may help explain why Mr. Stanley was not convicted of murder. 
I still have problems in understanding why an innocent explanation for Belinda Jackson's recall of the events was never explored. It was never explored Mm. on the record, on the transcripts that I've read uh, numerous times. But then I still have problems understanding why Mr. Stanley was not convicted of manslaughter because manslaughter exists as something that it basically applies to negligent uh, but unlawful killings. And so, you know, if we go back to even the Leo Lachance case, which is also from Saskatchewan and is viewed as a horrendous in, injustice where a neo-Nazi killed a Cree trapper in Prince Albert, even uh, that person was convicted of manslaughter. Right. And so... Which was going, I was going to ask that question. Yeah. How is this? Yeah. So, so the Crown said that... Uh, the alternative theory and, and, and what the Crown really relied upon, I think, was this idea that Mr. Stanley would be guilty of killing Colton Bushy while he was engaged in careless use of a firearm, which is a kind of separate crime. Mm. And I think one of the problems that we see is the judge told the jury that Mr. Stanley could have a lawful excuse for careless use of a firearm. And that's, that's, that's indeed what the criminal code said. But the judge never explained what a lawful excuse was. Mm. And so one of the one of the concerns that I have is that the jury might have felt that it was a lawful excuse that Mr. Stanley was subjectively afraid of Colton Bushy. So Mr. Stanley testified that as he was walking towards Colton Bushy, he was thinking about a 1994 murder uh, on a nearby farm, and he was thinking about what I surmise is the Nice terrorist attacks, which happened about a month, month ago. And even if you assume that that's indeed, that Mr. Stanley was, was honest, and that was in his mind, even under the Harper reforms, you can't kill someone or use lethal force simply because you're subjectively afraid of them. If that was the law, it would basically allow any kind of racist to say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of this person because of how they look. Yeah. So, so self-defense, even now in Canada, has to not only be honest, subjectively held, but has to be reasonable. And, of course, that raises the issue of who is the reasonable person, is the reasonable mm. person not racist. But the jury was never told by the trial judge in the Stanley case about that, that issue. They were simply said, you know, if you think Mr. Stanley has a lawful excuse for careless use of a firearm, then you can acquit him of, in this case, manslaughter as well as murder. Okay. So, so yeah, so I, you know, and, 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 and this, this, you know, and, and that's why I draw, draw analogies. And again, you know, some listeners may not remember this case, but I think you and I are probably of an age that we can. I draw analogies to the Bernard Getz case in New York, which was the subway vigilante who shot four African-American males on the New York subway. And, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, because in 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 the U.S., you can talk to jurors about why they made their decision. We know that the jurors in the Getz case did it because they accepted that Getz was subjectively afraid of these four African-American men, even though that might not be reasonable. In Canada, where we have kind of stricter 
controls on the jury. It's an offense to talk to any juror about why they made the decision. It's an offense on, under criminal code. And that's why we'll probably never know why the Stanley jury reached the decision that they did. One thing we do know is that the Stanley jury seemed to be afraid of what was happening. Um, they asked the trial judge to ask Alvin Batiste not to wave an eagle feather at the most critical moment of the trial, which was just before Gerald Stanley was cross-examined. So they're, they're somehow afraid of an eagle feather that has been brought in to the court. And we also know that at least one of the jurors was afraid that someone was, photog- uh, was taking a picture of him or her, um, I guess, you know, because jurors are, are supposed to, in our system, be anonymous. So, you know, again, um, you know, um, we'll probably never know, but I kind of go through the evidence that was available to me and suggest that this may very well be a case where the jury itself was a bit afraid and may have accepted that Mr. Stanley was afraid and that might have been the route to the acquittal. And that's, you know, obviously very, very, very disturbing. I mean, this was a book that was not easy to write. You know, prosecutors, defense counsel, judges are not going to be particularly happy with this book. Uh, But I'm at a stage of my life and um, a stage of my career that, especially after the decision not to appeal was made, the decision not to appoint a public inquiry, not to have a coroner's inquest into Colton Bushy's death, I felt it was, you know, important to at least put down uh, on on record what I saw from the public evidence. Um, there's going to be other stories. There may be other books. Tasha Hubbard mm-hmm. has has done a documentary which right. which which will headline at Hot Docs, yep. and you know, I I. In no way do I think this is the definitive word, but I do think that, you know, from the perspective of one person who has been involved in the criminal justice system for over 30 years, I felt it was important to uh, put down uh, what I see from the public record. Right. And uh, you mentioned Tasha Hubbard and uh, and her, her film, which will be uh, featured next Wednesday. Um, for people, I mentioned you mentioned you already have your ticket for that. So. I've 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 already bought my ticket, and, and I haven't seen the film, but I think it is. You know, and, and and one of the things is is I realize, and you know, I I've sent the book and I've sent tobacco to the Bushy Baptiste family. Um, there was some miscommunication, so I think the book coming out came as a surprise mm. to them, and I've apologized mm. to them, and I hope that things are moving in the right direction. Uh, but I think it is very important uh, for, for, for them uh, to tell their story. And I know that um, Tasha Hubbard uh, has worked very closely with the family. And uh, I think it is very important um, that that is going to be the headline at such an important uh, documentary because, you know, one of the things that I write about in this book is this is not the first time this has happened in Canada. It's not the first time Mm. this has happened in Saskatchewan. Um, And um, this has got to change. And, and, you know, 
I think all, all of us in our own way have to do what we can to make sure that this is not a case that is forgotten. Mm. The, this, this is a case that, that should be remembered, uh, and I believe remembered as a miscarriage of, of justice. Um, and, and, and actually, uh, Tasha will be in here uh, next week, uh, so uh, we'll be talking about that. So it's good to, to point that out. You mentioned something about jurors, and, and I'm wondering what your take is on that. And what I mean by that is you mentioned the difference between Canada and the United States. Which do you think is, is better in the long run or, or as, as we work through these kind of things? Yeah. You know, probably the American system. I mean, basically, um, 750 people were summoned to come to Battleford to serve on the jury. By my count, only 178 showed up. So already, given the geography of uh, and and the demography of Saskatchewan, a lot of Indigenous people would not have been able to make the trip mm. in January down mm. to Battleford, and and may also just not. I mean, why, as an Indigenous person, would you want to serve on a jury if the justice system has consistently failed you and and yep. and your family? But. I've been able to reconstruct through media sources and the transcript that at least 20 Indigenous people were among the 178. Okay. It may be more, right. but 12 of those were excused by the trial judge for hardship reasons. Mm. Now, that may you know, be, mm-hmm. we know, socioeconomic factors. Right. Three were excused because they were related to mm. the Bushy Baptiste family. Mm-hmm. But we know that five visibly indigenous people came and were called because it's done randomly out of those 178. They were called to be members of the jury. And we know that Mr. Stanley exercised what is called a peremptory challenge, basically to take a look at the juror and say, I don't want this person on my jury. And so we know that the jury had no visibly indigenous people on it. And, 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 and in the United States, and I'm not saying that this is the answer, but in the United States, that would have at least been challenged, right? It would have been challenged because Mr. Stanley and his lawyers would have had to give a non-discriminatory reason about why they didn't want those people. Now, you know, would that have been an improvement? Yes. But my preference, and it is one that the Trudeau government has actually moved on, although I'm not sure it's going to be uh, enacted before the election in October, is just to abolish peremptory challenges. This is what Justice Sinclair in the Manitoba Aboriginal Justice Inquiry way back in 1991 recommended. I've been teaching my students that this this is what should happen since 1991, having learned from Justice Sinclair. Um, and that's what Bill C-75, that's before Parliament, proposes to do. But it's been incredibly controversial. Uh, many defense lawyers are against it. Uh, many most lawyers that I've talked to are against it. And now with everything that's happening with the Trudeau government, I'm not sure it's going to get out of the Senate before we go into the election. Do you think it is uh, a valid uh, valid point to be against? I mean, does it make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean it makes sense in the sense that 
some of my defense lawyer friends have said, I use peremptory challenges, say, in a city like Toronto, in order to get a racialized person on the jury. Right. But the problem is, is if you look at the numbers, peremptory challenges are going to systematically work to the disadvantage of minorities. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that in this case, you know, imagine what would have happened if there were five visibly indigenous people on this jury or even six. Mm Because one of the things that I discuss is maybe we should look at this idea of guaranteed indigenous representation. Maybe the verdict would have been, been the same. Maybe not. Uh, but it would have been totally different. So I think we need to get rid of peremptories, but I don't think that's the only thing we need to do. I think what we need to do is work on improving indigenous representation on juries. And of course, you know, one of the problems, and I write about this, I mean, when I talk about the Stanley case having happened before, it happened right after with the Peter Cahill case mm. in uh, right. uh, near near Hamilton, right. and it looks like in that case there may have been no visibly indigenous people even subject to you know peremptory challenges just because yeah. because the indigenous underrepresentation on Ontario juries is so notorious, despite this involving the victim John Surrett, who was from Six Nations, so. I think we need to get rid of peremptory challenges, but I think we need to work on making it more possible and desirable for Indigenous people to serve on juries. And I think we need to work on asking those people who serve on juries more questions about whether they have racist stereotypes that can play into the verdict. I mean, the other shocking thing, which has not received nearly enough publicity about the Stanley case, is that none of the jurors were asked whether they had any racist preconceptions because the victim was Cree. And none was asked, even though the social media race racism was so bad that Premier Brad Wall went on Facebook urging and imploring people to knock it off with the racist tweets and the racist face, Facebook messages. So we have no idea whether those 12 jurors we know that there was no visibly indigenous people, but we have no idea what those 12 jurors would have said if they had been asked, um, are you going to be able to decide this case fairly on the basis of the evidence, even even considering that the victim, Colton Bushy, was Cree? Well, that gives us uh, something else to think about uh... We're going to take a pause. Uh, It's perhaps a a place to take a pause to do some thinking as well. But we do have to take a pause here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. And we will be right back after this with uh, Kent Roach, a professor of law at the University of Toronto, and discuss more. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa at 95.7 ELMNT-FM and in Ottawa, rather Toronto at 106.5 Element FM. And uh, you can also be listening on the Radio Canada app. If you download that, you can listen to either station uh, right across the country. So that's at 95.7 ELMNT-FM or Toronto 106.5 ELMNT-FM and uh, listen on your device of choice. We are, we are talking with uh, Professor Kent Roach. He is a, a, a professor of law at the University of Toronto, and he's also the author of Canadian Justice, Indigenous Injustice, the Gerald Stanley Colton Bushy case. And 
we've been talking quite a bit about uh, a number of things that have affected the case, uh, some of the details. Uh, also, though, we, we initially started talking about how, and, and Professor does deal with this uh, specifically in his case, and some of the things that could be uh, that could be implemented as we move forward. But we want to talk uh, to some degree about the treaty and 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 uh, Treaty Six in, in Saskatchewan. Uh, so, Professor, what, what, how did you want to how did you want to uh, approach that? Sure. Well, I mean, I mean, um, the foreword to the book is written by the world famous Anishinaabe scholar and law professor John Burroughs, and uh, John was 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 very gracious in sharing with me work that he had done in Saskatchewan quite a few years ago, talking to Treaty Six and Treaty Four elders about what the meaning of the treaty was. And it seems to me that um, if we go back to the treaty, we can see, you know, that what happened on the Stanley farm was a um, was not consistent with the sacred meaning and words of the treaty, especially mm-hmm. if it's un, un, understood in a way that takes into account the elders' perspective. And, you know, this case has been so divisive. Um, and, um, can I, can I stop you there for a second? What, in your, in your understanding, what did he mean and what do you mean when he said from an elder's perspective, what, what does that mean? Well, that, that, you know, the treaty, the written word of the treaty is in English. There were a lot of kind of misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. And I think that what some of the elders teachings that, that John, uh, shared, shared with, with me seem to speak to is that there has to be a stress on peaceful coexistence and, and that, you know, what happened on the Stanley farm and, and the violent way that Mr. Stanley responded, uh, but perhaps also some of the disrespectful ways that some of the people in the car um, um, used uh, were not really consistent with the, with the treaty. There was a case decided in 2014 where Cree accused said that the aid and assistance clause in the treaty, which is something that I think many uh, uh, of the elders have interpreted as preserving indigenous justice systems, required that in cases involving indigenous and non-indigenous people, we should have juries of six indigenous people and six non-indigenous people. Now, you know, the court rejected that and kind of rejected it by saying there's nothing explicitly written in the treaty. It's not for me as a non-Indigenous person to kind of say whether that's something that should or shouldn't be done, but I think it is relevant, especially when we think about how this case might have been decided if there were six or five Indigenous people on the jury. Mm. Now, I wouldn't mind coming back to the jurors. Um, it's something that you said earlier about jurors and how they're treated in Canada and the States, where you, you can approach jurors in the States and speak to them yes. about what they were thinking or why they came to a decision the way they did. But in Canada, they can't. Right. And, and, and do you think, which way do you think is the better to operate? I will always opt in favor of transparency. I think that the jurors in Canada exercise public power. 
I, you know, I mean, think of about all the demonstrations and all the hurt that this verdict caused mm-hmm. and all the disruption that it did to better relations. I think any time public power is exercised, it, it should be explained. And so I would much prefer uh, the American um, system. Mm. Uh, our, our system uh, kind of privileges the jurors' privacy over, over everything. And although I understand that, I think that it's a balance. And I think we should be able both to question jurors before they serve more than we presently can, but also to ask jurors questions. I mean, you know, some jurors may not want want to answer questions. And, you know, the jury in the Stanley case was like Mr. Stanley was quickly rushed out after the verdict. Uh presumably because there were fears that there would be violence. But there was no violence. People were heartbroken. People were dismayed. But it was peaceful. And, and again, that, that's something that, as a non-Indigenous person, I just think, you know, throughout my life, whether it's this case or, you know, two years that I spent working with Justice Sinclair on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Indigenous people have treated us settlers much better than we've treated them, and in some ways perhaps much better than we as settlers deserve. Mm. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I'm sure a lot of Indigenous people do appreciate that. Now, you mentioned RCAP. Um, that was, uh, there are some recommendations from that that uh, could be helpful in moving things forward. Do you want to, to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, both RCAP and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recognized that the criminal justice system is, is simply not working for Indigenous people. It's not working for Indigenous people as the accused and not working for Indigenous people uh, as victims. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is uh, move towards Indigenous justice systems. I think one area where we really need to think about is in uh, policing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, self-administered Indigenous police forces are having a very hard time in Canada uh, like so many services uh, for Indigenous people, they're underfunded. They have to serve three masters, the feds, the province, mm. and and the community. Um, so, you know, there are some real policing problems. And I am aware that, you know, when you live in a rural and remote area, which includes many Indigenous people, obviously not all, um, that you need to have a police force that is responsive to what the community wants. And of course, you know, one of the things here is it was the RCMP and it was the RCMP, of course, has not played a, a very constructive role uh, in uh, in settler indigenous representation. Um, they, um, they, and I'm sure that Tasha Hubbard will, will be in a better position to speak to this, but, you know, they... They gave Mr. Stanley, um, you know, his right to counsel. They treated him very respectfully. The the interrogation of Mr. Stanley, which really produced no evidence, was described by the trial judge as cordial. Um, they told Debbie Batiste that her son had died while they were raiding her home. 
uh, and uh, this is the subject of ongoing litigation. Um, but there's a real kind of disparity uh, between the treatment that Mr. Stanley received and the treatment that uh, Debbie. Baptiste received as Colton Bushy's uh, mom, and 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 indeed, the the whole family. You, you know, it's interesting when you you point out the choice of words and uh, how those words are used differently uh, in different situations. For uh, as you say, with Mr. Stanley and and the the family or the the, the victims and and what they are told. Uh, how's that? How that is? It is explained to them, but that goes right back to what you were talking about in terms of the treaty and the, and, and the misunderstanding of language between the indigenous and and the the crown, as it was discussed. That that that's been going on forever, and it really is uh, uh, something that is. It affects relationships. Uh, it's used to other some people's advantage. When that is uh, written down, and if someone doesn't understand what is actually being said to them, um, it's meant to to uh, be used against them, and that right from the start. But you know, I'm I'm wondering the other thing this leads to, and and something that is that I I believe we're going to be hearing a lot more of. We are hearing a lot more of it now, as and we're hearing more people talk about it, and Indigenous people talk about it, and that is intergenerational trauma. And I'm wondering, from your discussions, as you mentioned, uh, Justice Sinclair and, and your, your relationship there, at that time with the RCAP, was that something that he may have brought up to you to, to relay about, about how Indigenous people have been damaged over time re- with regard to this? This is something, as a non-Indigenous person, that I haven't always, frankly, fully understood. But as the years go by, um, I think I'm learning a little bit. And so, you know, the question of why um, the five were there, why so much was made of the fact that they were intoxicated, Mm. this is all, I think, connected with intergenerational uh, trauma. I also think that language is, you know, the the, the misunderstanding. So, um, you know, the way that the four surviving Cree people were treated as offenders by the RCMP, mm-hmm. they, they were arrested. And, you know, one of the RCMP's justification for coming into Debbie Batiste's house, basically, rating it was that they were looking for uh, one of the four who had not yet been arrested. Uh, I think that language is, uh, you know, and and kind of reclaiming the language. I mean, I I don't know how we as non-Indigenous people can understand the treaties if we don't at least make some attempt to understand what the words mean. And so to go back to really where we started with Commissioner Morris and Chief Big Bear, uh, their misunderstanding all all surrounded the word hanging, right, mm. which was mistranslated from the Cree. What, what Big Bear probably meant is he said, I want there to be no hanging as in hanging of a rope around a horse's neck. He wanted freedom. He wanted self-determination. Mm-hmm. What Morris heard was, I don't want capital punishment. Right. And Morris, you know, in a way, like 
unfortunately, many lawyers in, in who have defended the Stanley verdict and the process reacted very defensively and basically told Big Bear, there's going to be hanging. Now, he did make a promise mm. that the hanging would also occur if a settler killed an indigenous right. person, and and right. of course, you know, readers. It will be up to readers to decide how mm. it whether that promise was broken in the Colton Bushy case. But it was really this kind of lack of lack of understanding that really started in 1876, and of course, Big Bear left without signing the treaty. So there's still work to be done, and and I think especially in Saskatchewan, um, but really throughout throughout this this country. So uh, that's it. You mentioned work to be done. Uh, I'd like to talk about the future, as if you don't mind. We mm-hmm. have a few minutes left, so. Uh, how how do you see and what do you see coming? Uh, do you see hope? Do, what do you see coming next? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think if 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 Bill C seventy five does pass, that's a small first step mm-hmm. because I think that you know, and Justice Yakabuchi talked about this in his report about why Indigenous people are underrepresented on Ontario juries. I I think it's a very tough sell now to why an Indigenous person would want to serve on our juries if they can be basically peremptorily challenged simply because of how they they look. So I think we need to do that, but I also think Justice Yakabuchi was right and wise to say this is simply a symptom. And I think that the the Colton Bushy Gerald Stanley case is simply a sim- symptom. And we have to do a lot more root and branch. We have to look at all of the Truth and Reconciliations Commission's calls for action. We have to go back to our our cap because this is really a symptom that something is is grievously wrong. We know twenty eight percent of the prison population is indigenous. But then when mm-hmm. an indigenous person is victimized, we know that the justice system fails them. Mm-hmm. The missing and murdered uh, women's report will educate us even more about that. So we really have to say that uh, colonialism is not working. And it's particularly not working in the justice system. And maybe we have to, you know, um, start there and 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 in other ways in, in trying to move to a more peaceful and sustainable future. I don't, I don't see a clear path, um, uh, but I do think it is important to try to convince people that the present status quo is, is, is not sustainable. It's not sustainable for us, and it certainly isn't sustainable for our children and our grandchildren. So you mentioned something that I wouldn't mind uh, quickly asking you about, and that is uh, you mentioned your students. And uh, I'm just wondering, do you see two things? One, do you see hope in your students uh, being perhaps uh, to be impartial and, and being able to move forward from, from what you're, you're teaching and what you're seeing? And two, do you see more Indigenous students uh, coming through your classes? Um. Unfortunately, I don't see more Indigenous students coming through my class. I mean, I've been very fortunate over my career. I, you know, one of my first students was Jean Taye, who's one of our leading Métis lawyers. I've uh, Catherine, Hen- Catherine Hensel, uh, uh, leading lawyer here in Toronto. But it's, you know, I mean, it is only a handful. Mm. Um, I think that 
all, you know, and this was part of the TRC's vision that hopefully there will be more sensitivity. Uh, but then it's also, I mean, it can't just be the lawyers. It has to be mm. the people who serve on juries. Mm. And so, you know, m- my children uh, t- learn more about you know, the the troubled relations and the injustice towards Indigenous peoples. When I look at my children who are not lawyers, uh, I see some hope. But the legal system has a lot of work left to do. Professor, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been wonderful talking with you and discussing this. And I appreciate your, your candor and your, your uh, comments. Uh, professor uh, Kent Roach, and he is professor at the University of Toronto and uh, at the uh, professor of law. He's also the author of Canadian Justice, Indigenous Injustice, the Gerald Stanley, Colton Bushy case. He's been our guest today. Thanks once again for coming in. Appreciate your time. Megwetch.